Welcome everyone to Journeys in Podcasting, starting the learning community within and beyond. Today in journey number two, we are dealing with our topic, student-created tutorials. We have invited over our math specialists here at CNG to discuss how they have used the app Explain Everything to create student tutorials. Also, later on, we have invited Rashawn Richards, the creator of the app Explain Everything, to discuss with us the benefits of using the apps with the student. All right, let's get started. And here at the table we have... Uh, I'm Diego, technology teacher for elementary. Uh, Adam Douglas, technology integration for middle school and high school. My name is Aaron Garrier, I'm an elementary school math coach. And I'm Carla Sanchez, elementary math coach as well. And today we're highlighting student tutorials. We're going to start with a project that Aaron and Carla got started. So they got the ball rolling on this and we'll hand it over to them. So we ended up using some of our units of study for math to have the students create tutorials to teach the different strategies that they were learning in class. And we, we went about it in a variety of different ways. Uh, we had students working with teachers in small groups that rotated around. There were sometimes it was whole group instruction, but the, the goal at the end was a student created uh, screencast that we used to explain everything. And this app here is called Number Pieces. It's by the Math Learning Center. And we used it for uh, subtraction, if I'm not mistaken, right, Carla? Subtraction. Yeah, it was for subtraction strategies. And we liked this because it was a virtual representation of a physical model that we use in class, but it allowed for some extra flexibility for the kids to explain their thinking. So we found that it was really helpful for the kids to actually be able to manipulate the pieces in a different way than they would be able to do in real life. Okay, so here, um, as we were developing the project, we um, had our small separate groups, and you can see different photos of the students um, when they're working together. Um, you see them sitting in groups uh, using the the steel case chairs that we have, right? Um, as well as using the technology of the iPads. We have the, um, they're able to share the work that they created um, using the TV where they have the plugins. I don't know what the fancy The Mediascapes. Thank you, the Mediascapes, okay. Um, and the students uh, were also able to, once they became um, the master, like the, they, they really understood the strategy, that they had really focused on, then they were able to teach that strategy to other students using um, iPads as well, technology. And one of the things that we noticed in looking at this learning in this way was that the kids learned the concepts more quickly, they were able to use them more readily, so we had a higher success in our assessments than we have uh, from other classes that were working through the same topics. Uh, we felt that the kids were way more engaged than they normally would, uh, and uh, we were able to get through more content. So we, we actually got through a lot more, which it would seem to be not that way, just because the kids were producing more. You know, they had to not only learn the strategies and practice, but then they actually had to create a tutorial where they were teaching their classmates about the strategy that they'd become an expert in. Yeah, and another, another thing that um, I noticed when they became the expert in their strategy, um, and they were responsible for teaching other students the, the mathematics vocabulary that they used to explain their thinking was way it was way more um, specific. Specific. it was specific. It was very very good specific mathematical vocabulary. Which before you would hear them say talk about numbers and you just put these numbers together. Well, here they were talking about add-ins. They were talking, when we used this for multiplication, they were talking about the products and the factors and place value. So they they really, really focused on um, the explanation of the strategy, but really using very clear mathematics vocabulary. I'm looking at like the difference in, in tools you guys have, because you still have the, the physical whiteboards here, and then I see someone else working on pencil and paper here, and then I see the kids using the iPads. It looks like they photographed, I think they photographed a whiteboard here, yeah. and then they're, this is like explain everything where they're screencasting over here. Right. On that specific topic that you're talking about of the kids expanding their vocabulary, do you think the actual use of the tools had an effect on the way they talked about their math? 
I think it did. I think it did because, you know, not only the tools, but also just the fact that we were letting go of the control of the class and making the students the experts, right? And so they were now responsible for teaching their classmates. We just gave them some additional tools that helped them to, I guess it engaged them more. Well, and I think when you have a variety of ways to explain, I mean, for lack of a better word, but to explain what's going on in your head when you're having to write it out on paper and then when you're having to model it on a board and then you're having to collect that work in a way that's organized and makes sense to actually teach that to someone else, I think you're much more mindful of the work that you're doing when you know that you have to teach it, when you have to know it well enough to be able to explain it step by step. So I think that was the big difference for me, I think, from a more traditional strategy lesson versus the lessons that we did together. I think that was a big difference. So, yes, I see a lot of choice. Like, I think you, I guess, had the kids choosing which strategy they wanted to be the master of and then choosing what, you know, tool, exact tool they're going to be using for that as well. Right. And choosing how they were going to present it as well. Like, you know, some students, when we were in the Explain Everything, strictly took pictures of their boards, so they felt comfortable putting their work on the boards, where others felt more comfortable with, you know, actually writing using the Explain Everything app. So there was a lot of choice there as well. Well, and then we had some other apps that the kids used, like the Number Pieces app, where they felt with some strategy it was easier for them to actually do it on that app, take shots of that, and then push that into Explain Everything to explain their thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by what you guys have going on here, this idea of the kids trying something out, prototyping it, sharing it with their peers, quickly getting feedback, and then going back at it, and then having that kind of prototype loop in several formats. So you've got it just kind of informally here, just sitting next to each other, and then more formal settings here where they're gathered around media pieces as well. Is that something you guys trained, or, I mean, how did you get them into such? Well, I think it kind of grew into something that looked more like that. I mean, this was our last round. Like, we had really done this three times with this group of kids, and we learned a lot as we went through. And we did some actual research, too. You know, in the beginning it was, well, okay, what would this look like teaching a strategy if we were just using boards and pens and no technology? What would this look like if we used the Mediascape and boards? Or what would this look like if we had, like, a projector and iPads? And so we were looking at, well, what's the most efficient way for kids to pick these ideas up, and what's the most efficient way to deliver them? And it really wasn't a clear-cut answer as to which one was the best. It really did have to do with the strategy that we taught. So depending on what it is we were trying to get the kids to do, there was a modality that works better. And I don't think that there's one right way to do this. I mean, you really have to be mindful of what it is you're trying to accomplish and what's the easiest way for kids to show their thinking. Also, I think the benefit of using technology but also using boards and also using the paper and pencil, I mean, in reality, our classrooms, we have access to iPads, but a lot of the work that is done is done on paper and pencil. So if we strictly worked with iPads and then assessed them using paper and pencil, there might be a different result coming out. So the idea is that they're able to use all three, like the board or the paper or the technology. Well, and as the kids got more comfortable with what was expected of them, they got more efficient too. Like they were able to be way more articulate. And the video that you'll see in the next slide, it's the third round. Well, that was the second one actually. But we felt like compared to the first video and compared, I mean, looking at their first attempts to the attempts that we had towards the end, the quality of the video was much higher. So I think even just them getting used to the technology and what's being expected of them really had a huge gain. And just sticking with it even in the beginning was kind of a pain. And I think like having access to all of those different tools also, you know, like enabled you as teachers to actually approach and address different learning styles too in the classroom that maybe you wouldn't be able to in a regular classroom where you wouldn't have access to these, like the boards and the iPads and Mediascapes and everything. And you also like in the end, the kids took ownership of their own learning. So they like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm in charge of this. And the other great thing is that because of, you know, that happening, 
uh, enable them to actually you develop the math skills, which is what you wanted in the first place. But they also ended up like you know raising up a little bit their language skills and yeah. using Absolutely. different words and. You know, so that's that's a great thing. And yeah. not only did they take ownership of their own learning, they took ownership of the students they were teaching as well. Like they they really took this assignment seriously. <laughs> seriously. Was, that top um, left hand picture, they were able. So they they were responsible for teaching um, students, but then this particular group made a quiz or a test. To, to have their kids to assess them on how did they do on the strategy, and so that's what the paper and pencil is. They were actually um, doing a test. No, I love this creating the social event around it as well. You something as simple as solving problems on a whiteboard, explaining your strategy, um, becomes way more dynamic when we get to all of a sudden photograph it, throw it on the screen, and get everyone talking about it. Yeah. Should we take a look at that that video? Yeah. Sure. <coughs> So hi, my name is Isabel, and I'm going to show you the shower folding strategy. So yeah, with big numbers, so my equation, the first step is like write your equation, and this is my equation is 570 minus 577, and so yeah, I wrote 5 squares for 500, and then 7, 7, 6. For the 70 and like 0, 1, so that would be a circle or a mini square for the 1. So, yeah. So, the first step is to leave all of these. So, yeah. And I did it. <laughs> so, this is the second step. And so, the second step is after I wrote everything, we cannot 0 minus 7, we cannot do that. So, what you do is you cross out this and you put 6, and so you cross out. One of these, I didn't cross it out, but I made, I converted this into ones. So that's, this is six, and so I have ten ones now. And then I subtract seven from ten. So I cross out seven squares, and then you have three left. So that's where I write it, three. Now, Very cool. Very cool. 
Uh, I really like back here, when she got to this part right here, what I found really interesting was when she talked about these numbers, of course that was a three and a seven, and when she talked about these numbers, I, I would assume they would say four and a two, but she immediately went to 40 and 20, yeah. and the same here, 400 and 100, and I wonder yeah. if that's because of the, the visual tool she's using there, or if you guys are just like teaching that part, but that, that was pretty surprising. I think it's kind of both. Yeah. We're, we're trying to emphasize about place value and that it's not just one plus four plus two, it's 10 plus 40 plus 20 in the tens of place. So I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, and the, the bit at the end that the metacognition. Yeah. Well, we could ask them to reflect at the end about when this would be a good strategy to use and when might you use the strategy in the real world. So, and that was the that was the extension. That was kind of how we stretched in. This was our second time around doing this activity, so that was the part that we added. Um, and then we used what they had given us on the second round for the third round to really talk about well, when when else might we use this or or when else might this be good because. Um, it was, the answers were pretty school-based, I think. So um, we tried to help them stretch into that. But it, I, like, like we noticed all the way through that this was a learning experience not only for the kids, but for us too, yeah. to really see you know, not only what we were expecting of the kids, but what they showed us. And they wowed us in a lot of aspects, I think. No, and how being cool. able to produce these. It they turned out way better than, than it, we had originally imagined. I mean, I, assume, I think you're going to talk in a minute where, where these go after this, but how cool when you go to the next cycle with another class, you pull a couple of these up, and then they've yeah. already got like a standard for this is what a good explanation sounds like. Yeah. When you talk intelligently about math, it looks and sounds like this. Yeah. And after, after we had that second round, Aaron and I sat down and tried to come up with a rubric to help us like, what is it that we're really looking for so that we could show kids, like, wow, there should be an introduction. We should see, um, you know, what kind of, what kind of um, elements should we see in the production of this video? Yeah, um, that's something I was wondering about, because, like, when you have kids producing kind of in a creative, within a framework, like, they know they have to stay within these boundaries, they're not just creating a screencast about anything, but I wonder how much leaving it open lends itself to the kids appropriating the app. And, and doing creative things that aren't expected. Like the more we prescribe, this is the way it's done. The more they're all going to try to like teach it by doing it that way. So I, I almost wonder if like you just kind of leave those as general as possible, because I feel like the, the more we say like this is what we're expecting, the more the kids are going to kind of jump through that hoop. Mm -hmm. Whereas if, if you leave it kind of open, we saw this in Renee's class last year when we gave them a pretty open assignment to create screencasts about their reading and. No screencast, no two were alike. Mm -hmm. Kids really invented, photographed, filmed in all kind of different ways, even though the objective of the activity was kind of the same. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at time, so we're gonna oh. we're gonna kind of go forward. What is this? So this is the end product. This is part of our professional growth plan for the year, and what we've we've always dreamt of doing something like this, and never really just taken a plunge. So we're trying it out this year. We're gonna take these tutorials that we're building and put them up for the world to see. And we're hoping that it starts with our community and that parents that are helping out with homework, that are struggling with a strategy, can watch one of the tutorial videos, uh, or a kid that needs some extra help can get on, or even a teacher that wants to have an example of how a kid might solve a problem in a class lesson could pull these videos up and um, help learn. So. We're, we're putting that together. It's sorted out by grade and then by unit of study in the hopes that it'll be easily accessible. So as the year progresses, we'll be building and putting the best examples up on the website for our larger community to use. Very cool. I love how you're looking forward to integrate parents into this too. Like uh, when kids go home, maybe parents use a different strategy from what we're actually doing in the classroom. So this, this is going to really help. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, oh, sorry. that's something that we, I mean, when we started um, from our old math program, then we went to investigations, that's one of the biggest complaints that we heard is the parents don't know how to do the new math. The and, new math. Program. Right, and the, the, the being able to explain and why so many different strategies, and I don't understand the strategy. So the idea was to have something that both the students and the parents, and even the teachers who who may be a little shaky on some of these strategies um, can go and look for additional resources. Yeah. yeah, and I'm just kind of like wondering all the different ways you could spend this later. You know, students posting um, their problems, like like here's my problem, and now 
you have to try to, you know, the other kids can go on and create screencasts trying to solve that problem. Like this could become, a, you know, its own kind of digital working space. That'd be cool. Cool. Um, okay, well, talking about where other screencasting is going on, um, you want to watch this one first, or should you want to introduce it? Yeah, let's give, let's give it a try and see how that goes. Hello, my name is Sam, and I'm going to teach you how to upload files to your drive. You go over here, which is not necessary yet, and you put over here, you go to Chrome, or to Safari, you would try to load. You click a new tab, yes, the old one out. You create Gmail, to search for Gmail. For example, you put your email, for example, this one is fngmoy and edu. It's over here. Now you put your password. You go over here. Then you wait for it to load. You go over here next to where it says your name. There's like these squares. You clicked on them. And then you put drive. After drive loads, you need to go over here to new. You need to go to file upload. You're going to go over here to, to whatever you want a picture. And you're going to click on a picture you want. And then I click, for example, in this one. It's uploading over here. And it says it's just uploading over here. It's a PG having uploaded to my drive. Ever since it has uploaded, if you want to make sure it has uploaded, you click over here. And there it is a picture. Well, thanks for watching. Now you need to log off for security. <laughs> Sign out. And make sure everything's signed out of your account. Go away. And turn off the computer. And turn off the computer. That was cool. She knows she needs to log out to protect her information. This is great. She's a fourth grade student. Um, and in class... I mean, it's it's great to see that they're actually mastering the, like the basic tools we want them to to know and to use every day, just to get them used to check their email on a regular basis and how to access the different apps that we use here. It's cool, but it's also good because she like these fourth grade and fifth grade students. They know we can use this for lower grades. So if third graders are, have, are having issues to you know finding out their Gmail or remember how to get to Google Drive or in this case what you make was okay I need to upload something or share something with my teacher how do I do that then we can share these tutorials or show maybe these tutorials in class to other kids and then they will know and I think it's even more meaningful uh, to for them to see that actually other students are creating this so that that kind of a keeps that uh, student voice of a, a power kind of thing. Um, no, and watching this, what, I, what I'm thinking about is, is kind of the different kinds of thinking captured, the different kinds of knowledge captured, and this combination of procedural knowledge of actually using the screencast and going through these text steps that are very procedural, but then combining that with what the math um, teachers are doing, combining that with their higher order thinking as well. So I think that's a, a nice bridge between those two kinds of thinking. Right, because not only they have to know how to do it, like, okay, I know how to access my Google Drive or my Gmail, but now how do I actually explain this to somebody else? And like, think about language again. How do I do transitions from one step to, to the next? And that, what language am I going to use to make it clearer for other people too? And we should have a student uh, tech integration PD where they come in and just sort of give us presentations on how to do some of these things. Sure. Well, and I can even see this, like, taking time off your plate, you know, so that you can teach other things. Yeah. You don't have to spend a lot of time dealing with this basic how to get in, how to put in your password, how to upload a file. Like, this could go home as, like, homework. Or this could be something that's kind of self-paced through the class. And you right. can help the kids that are really needing the help instead of trying to teach step-by-step step for 23 kids, like they could watch the video and be able to do this on their own. Using the screencast as a kind of a flipping technique. Yeah, even, exactly. Even this right here. Everyone, before you come to class tomorrow, you need to go watch Emma's video on how to upload images to your drive. Great. Okay, so um, this is just a quick run-through of how this would fit. I mean, as I see the screencast, they're kind of like mini-projects in themselves. But they would also fit, I think, very well into some of our larger project formats. So this is our Lucy Calkins uh, TC 
writer's workshop uh, writing cycle. And so, you know, a lot of these elements are going to be kind of consistent across uh, across projects. In the pre-writing, you have the choice of the you know, student finding their, their voice and their ideas, uh, drafting, organizing their ideas, revising. And of course, all these social elements can come into play in all these as well. And all of these could become mini screencasts in themselves. Editing and conventions, and then finally publishing and celebrating. And what I really want to talk about is how this fits into other project models. So Buck Institute has a nice um, hexagonal design here where it's almost sequential, although you can kind of rearrange these or go back and forth between them. But the idea is that you design it with a challenging problem or question, whether it's student-oriented or teacher-oriented. So in this kind of challenge-based learning, um, you know, I think it'd be more teacher-oriented, but then you have the authenticity of the students getting to, to choose it. Um, and so, oops, let me, not, let me not do that and go back to that slide. Um, and so then as you go through, you have these kind of prototype models of the critique and revision and then moving towards the final product. So even the design, oh, sorry, and then finally there's the reflection, having the audience as well. Even the, the screencast itself could fit this whole design here. So as, as you guys saw, those are kind of like a project over a couple of days or over a week's time. Um, I think this model would lend itself very, very well into kind of managing that or even maybe even using this as a visual of what steps you're going through as you're coming to the end of your project just like we do with the Lucy Calkins writing and then very similar a design thinking model um, and so these again are laid out sequentially but they don't they, they can bounce back and forth as well but empathizing with an idea and defining what are the main problems around that and then finally ideating what are you know what is the product we're going to create to solve this problem and then the prototyping would be the creation getting feedback and you could bounce back and forth here or you could jump back here if you need to go back and redefine what the problem is finally the testing out and, and publishing so i think this mentality of these project models lend themselves at whatever scale we're doing this be it like one week um, tutorial screencast or larger projects as well and then finally, this is a challenge base. There's so many similarities between these, but the cycles are, are very similar. You have the big idea, the essential question, the challenge, guiding questions, activities, and resources, coming up to the solution, implementation, and evaluation. So these um, project cycles that have already been identified in several formats, I think, um, are something we're trying to adopt more here as well. And then finally, um, how these screencasts fit multiple points across our curriculum. These are the ISTE standards, which we're, we're mapping out this year um, and next semester as well, just where these are already present in our, in our teaching. And so looking at your screencast project, you know, I definitely saw um, several points of the creativity innovation, of the communication and collaboration, and of the critical thinking, problem solving, and decision making um, elements of the project were all in there as well. Yeah. So in addition to you know, you're, the, the math standards that we're covering, we're also covering these 21st century learning skills as well. Well, and I think it's important to point out, like, really to reach those, it's not so much about the product, but the process. And to think about the collaboration and the communication and the creative, creativity piece to critical thinking, a lot of that came as they were working. And those cycles that we did, both where we gave feedback, where students gave feedback, where they were able to reflect and revise, where they were teaching each other, like all of those things that came out through the process was really where a lot of these came out. It wasn't the video at the end. It was almost, I mean, it felt to me like that was, that, that was almost the least important part because they were doing so much work to get to that point that was really the most meaningful. And the video was almost just the proof of their work. Um, and that the process was the part that really counted the most. Yeah, and thinking back to the pictures you guys posted, I think that was really lucky that you guys took those pictures because those could be actually reflection moments where you put those up in class and <clears throat> reiterate what the process you're working on is. Great, you know, sort of documentation technique just to have those things present so the kids are thinking it's really not about this final product. It's about all these moments in between where we're trying to work together, giving feedback from each other, going back and trying it again. My name is Rashawn Richards. I am currently in New Jersey, which is where I live and I work. I'm the Director of Educational Technology at Montclair Kimberly Academy, which is a pre-K to 12 independent school, uh, day school co-ed in northern New Jersey, where uh, I'm primarily in charge of um, 
teaching, learning, and assessment with technology, um, and in support of our one-to-one -one program, which is grades 4 through 12, but also um, the technology implementations we have in our lower grades, pre-K to 3. Um, I'm also, uh, now I'm, I finished my doctoral research at Teachers College, and now I, uh, in, at Columbia University, um, and I did my, my research in instructional technology and media, uh, and right now I'm still uh, adjuncting there. I teach a course in the spring semester on uh, design thinking and ed tech, or problem solving in ed tech with design thinking. Um, and then one of my other areas of, uh, or areas that keep me busy, I'm also one of the co-founders of Explain Everything uh, for iPad and now Android and Windows and maybe other things to come in the future. So, you know, all of my, you know, I started, when I, my background is in being in the classroom as a math teacher, middle school, and uh, even last year I was teaching a fifth grade class, but the combination of my practice in the classroom, uh, working in ed tech integration, uh, my research interests in teaching and learning, and teaching, learning assessment with technology, uh, all kind of meshed together around the time that uh, I connected with my now co-founders, um, to design the app Explain Everything. So it was all kind of serendipitous, but uh, the timing was really good, really because I wanted something for use in my own classroom, but also to do research with. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, we've been studying kind of like different project-based models, so I was interested to, at, at the end. I'd love to hear more of your comments kind of just on the design thinking model, especially how you sure. guys use it at the elementary school level. But I guess we'll start with kind of more things that were pertaining to the topics of the podcast we were, we were running, which is basically on student-produced um, tutorials, like getting students to kind of like explain to other students how, how to do things, and then we're building libraries of those screencasts uh, for sharing out as well. So um, I guess we'll start just with kind of the app itself, because we've been using it for, I want to say, two and a half years or so. Uh, what was the inspiration like the, in, in the intent of the design of the app? So I've been using screencasting in my fifth or sixth grade and eighth grade class um, for a little while. I learned about the process of capturing what's happening on your screen, including audio narration, making a movie file. But at the time, uh, this probably started in like 2006, 2007. It required you know a smart board or interactive whiteboard, a desktop computer that was plugged into it, a USB external microphone because even then computers didn't come with a microphone built in, much less a camera, um, and then also then running a piece of software on the computer to be able to record the screen. So there were all these uh, elements at play that were that worked well together, but it required some thought and effort to make them work together. And then there was also I could only have one setup in my classroom. So I wasn't using it necessarily for me to produce instructional videos, but I was excited about um, when my students were using it as a means for um, showing how they're working through a problem. It was uh, an interesting way uh, for them to share their work, and I found that I was learning a lot about them, about their choices, um, how they talk through the problem, how they articulated their thinking um, through these videos, and that's what sort of formed the... Uh, the, my research base, then around 2009, 2010, when the first iPad came out, I was like, oh, maybe what was now this kind of cumbersome and fragmented process uh, might be able to be done on, in one single device, because they're like, all right, the device is going to have a touchscreen interface, I'm going to assume it might have a microphone for recording, and maybe no longer do I just have uh, one of those devices, it could be distributed over um, many classes, or many students, but nothing like, at least for the first several months of the iPad being out, there was nothing, no tool like that. Everything was very much uh, delivery, content delivery, fancy this or games, drill type thing, if it was even being labeled as an educational app. So I started doing research about, well, what does it take? Well, first of all, is anybody doing anything that's kind of more student-centered from a creative standpoint, like building and using the device as a creation tool? Uh, and then also, was anybody even considering building a type of screen recording uh, app that I'd be that I'd want to use for my research? Uh, but there were no takers; nobody was thinking about it. So finally, I was like, "Well, what does it actually take to build something on your own?" 
Um, and then it just it just worked out that this one company or these, these this group of people who I'd read a review of one of their other apps um, kind of had some of the back end pieces of some of the elements I would thought would work. Uh, and we just found like we had this like great synergy of like thinking about teaching and learning the same way and about creativity and what it means to have a mobile device. Uh, and it it just it, we just found this great energy together. Uh, and that's what led to the the app being built because uh, you know we had complementary talents and common interests. I think it worked out well. Wow, cool! Um, I like this kind of classroom base of the whole thing. So you're already a classroom teacher before you ever like design the app, but you're already kind of doing all this stuff. Um, the updating process, because like since we started using it, it's it's kind of changed and morphed, and it seems to graft on to whatever platforms are out there, the ease of uploading to Google Drive, um, the ease of exporting in various formats. How do you keep up with that? Um, well, we, you know, we very much respond to user requests and ideas. Um, and we also try to, you know, we've had our own roadmap of things we'd like to put in, but just time and resources limit the pace at which we can do that. Um, but we definitely, you know, over the past three years, uh, have gotten great ideas and feature requests from users, uh, and we prioritize those in our in our pipeline. And just we're always saying, well, we're always continually to reinvest our time and energy in trying to make the best experience possible because that's where we started. We weren't thinking like, oh, let's put some out something out there and just sell it and see, you know, let's try to make some money off of it. Um, from the start, we were genuinely like, let's make a really cool experience and if it turns into a successful business, great. Um, but if not, we could still feel proud that we've created something that lets people do some creative things and uh, return some interesting results. So I think having that mindset, um, it's made it very easy that when a user says, hey, can you, you know, can you add a redo tool in addition to the undo tool? It's like, well, yeah, that does make sense. Um, let's build it in. Yes, it requires us restructuring some of the way the, the logic in the app works, but it's worth it because we've had enough users saying it would be great because if I hit the undo button one too many times, I can't redo it. So that's why we added, we're, we've added a redo button. And that's a direct user request. Huh. So um, kind of jumping, but uh, like when you said you're like into design thinking, when you designed the app, did you all pretty much use that process to design the app and to keep up with it? or um, Not at yeah, not intentionally. I mean, I bet you if I went back and was going to like write a story about it and try to use that as a framework to kind of describe the whole process, um, yeah, I bet you it wouldn't be difficult to make those connections. Um, but it, no, I mean, I've always said like when I talk about design thinking that it's really nothing new. It's just it's just a very accessible way to describe the things that most educators are actually already doing. They just don't realize it. Just the idea like you design an instructional activity or a curricular unit or you know just the whole scope and sequence of your year, but you're always iterating. You have your goals in mind. You have your problems you're trying to solve. And a good educator, hopefully, is looking back at that previous year and trying to say, well, what worked well? What didn't? What can I uh, adapt, adapt and adjust? What new things are there out there that might make the experience better? So it's really it's the same type of thinking, but not necessarily using some of the terminolo terminology that's in some of the you know better known um, frameworks or acronyms around design thinking. Hmm. Um, I'm kind of following my question this. I try to put it as sequentially as possible, but like yeah. after looking through your stuff, you know, I, I definitely was impressed by this this part of kind of capturing the the formative assessment in, in a more authentic way. And like when when you designed it, were you thinking more presentation final product, like a PowerPoint kind of thing, or were you thinking more of capturing process? So from my like personal interests and research interests, it was all about students using it as a creative tool and capturing process, not necessarily polished presentations or videos or uh, things like that. But we all, I also knew that um, that might be a very easy entry point for some people who are just getting used to using mobile tools to create. Um, so it, it, though I had my own interest, we were never going to say, like, well, this is the only way the tool should be used, or this is how it's supposed to be used. Um, instead, I could just 
talk about the ways that I'm looking at it and the lenses that I'm using um, to see how students are using it. Uh, and that's where I think I think having that position also I think resonates well with educators because I know that when a software company comes up to me and is like trying to sell something and like it's like well it kind of has to be used this way or that way and you know here's how it's going to improve education and raise test scores. Um, who can prove any of those things, right? It all depends on the context and the people and the institutional goals or the cultural um, situation. So you can't generalize those kinds of statements. Um, but I could still share my experiences and the successes that I've seen uh, while also being very clear about the things that I'm interested in so that you, you know that there's a certain bias when I speak about uh, the way the tools use, but that by no means is the only way it can be used or the way it should be used. Mm. Yeah, I, I saw the video uh, of the kid um, who had created the solar system uh, <laughs> and like you know the whole journey with the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so that, that was something we were really interested in as well, it, is watching how different kids um, appropriate the app. And what I've been kind of collecting is like different assignments that we give them, we leave them open enough where the kids can actually you know take it and create something different with it. We did a, a, a reading part where every kid created kind of a presentation for their reading circle, and they were all completely different. Um, and then recently, a, a visual scribing method where the kid just kind of like finger sketched things out and swipe and then they came up with some really creative ways to capture thinking that way. Um, I guess the bigger kind of research question is 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 kind of the proof of you know I, I noticed that you had written or on your slide decks connected all of these things about connecting procedural, visual tactile, haptic knowledge, and connected that into a narrative, what research is there or proof is there that would show that that's a really effective way to learn? So, you know, there's, there's studies out there. I won't necessarily call it proof, but I'll call it, you can take it as either anecdotal or just a small sample of evidence. Um, part of it's when it comes to um, just multimodality when it comes to learning from a cognitive perspective, so not, so just the way that information is processed through different modes. Um, and then there's multimedia, which is the actual different forms of digital or uh, visual or audio media um, that accesses those cognitive channels. And there's research out there that's been done that connects, you know, I, I don't really buy into it where it says like, oh, because the students were making these video projects, they got higher scores. I mean, often people are looking for this very causal relationship between the tech choices and uh, the outcomes. And uh, my whole research base is to say, um, yeah, that might be true in some cases, but there's no way to say like, okay, for every student using a certain type of technology is going to guarantee that they're going to have a better learning experience because there's so many different types of learners. So to me, the most important thing is and is about the choice and providing as many different ways uh, for students to express or build understanding, which takes the educator, the teachers, the recognition that there are so many different types of learners. Um, and so I think that, that area of research is what's more interesting to me than just saying, Oh, looking for multimedia or multimodal platforms um, leading to a greater learning experience. Because then I'll always say, well, how do you define effective learning? What does that look like? Hmm. We have a couple, a few more people who joined the room, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves really quickly before we go sure. on to our next question. Oh, sweet. Hi, I'm Natalia Leon. I'm a third grade home teacher, and I'm really excited about being here and hearing you because my kids love using Explain Everything. Oh, cool. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm Steve Alba. I'm a third grade teacher as well, and I'm very excited. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Um, hi, I'm Diego. I'm in the technology department here, my constructional technology teacher. I do have a question. We did miss you at EST this year because I was really <laughs> looking forward to seeing you there. But I, I saw your slide deck presentation that you did in uh, Arlington Heights. Sure. About um, the iPad literacy project. What can you tell us about that? So that, uh, one of my good friends, he... Uh, we became friends because of an email that he, he sent to me many years ago, just a few months after the app was released. Um, so like you said about the kid who made the solar system video, like it's not like we ever said, oh, you have to use the app to make 
animation videos, or you should be using it in this way or that way. But we're seeing that people are kind of discovering those uses. So David Malone, who is the one who's come up with that iPad literacy project, he just put together this very simple process for uh, students to build self-understanding of how they were doing, progressing with reading uh, and their literacy. And it was simple. It was just whatever they were reading, they would take a screenshot or photograph of it, import it into the app, and then like point along and read with their finger um, and be able to hear back to them, listen back to what they were saying. And he built a whole literacy program just around that simple use of the tool, uh, which was really neat. And am I still here or am I cutting out? No, I was moving things around on the screen and you disappeared for a second so everyone's face probably went like, <laughs> I knew something was happening. I saw like, uh-oh. <laughs> nothing was going on. Uh, but anyway, so David Malone, he actually he put, he released a, an iBook uh, just about specifically that project and it's free. Um, so definitely check that out because he's got a, he's got a good head about him thinking about technology. Uh, and self-assessment. So on that topic of assessment, one of the questions I put out there was, um, like, I, I, I like this whole idea of capturing the process and, and uh, you know, capturing this internal dialogue kids are often having and, and getting kind of insight into their thinking in a new way. If you were to revamp how we go about assessment, so I noticed in your TED talk you're not a big, you know, on kind of like final outcome assessment. What would be your dream kind of assessment that we would design? So I, I think I think it's it, it, it's some sort of process. Like I, I just it's not a test, it's not a project, it's not a paper. Um, I, I think it's like just a way of thinking um, that would have to be present so that. There was no, there's, there's an idea of like what a goal you're trying to reach is, but it's not a content goal. Maybe it's a self-efficacy goal or confidence or application of skill goal, and that can translate into many things. But the purpose isn't necessarily like, okay, by the end of this grade you have reached here, but instead every student individually, um, the whole point is just to be making progress and be able to self-monitor and self-learn and have a the ability to learn and to know how to learn, not to know things. Um, and so trying to measure that, knowing how to learn or learning about learning is what's, to me, like the key about assessment and what's going to be most valuable for the students. So I don't fully know what that looks like yet, but I do know that when students are put in the process of creating these artifacts of understanding that show a different lens into how they're thinking, they might become more reflective of, the, of themselves as a learner and of how they articulate their thinking, regardless of the content, regardless of the discipline. Um, and that's the kind of skill, if you want to call it, that I think teachers uh, are really trying to empower students with, because that they can take with them anywhere. Well, I mean, you know, I, th I think you work in a school environment as well, so you, you know that the, the pressure is to kind of design these assessments that are sort of pushing to measure the, these skills. And so I, I often find it, even in my own teaching, that like sometimes I'm just kind of disappointed in myself and that I'm, I'm creating these assessments where they're all the same. Like the kid's product is all kind of looking the same. And so I was wondering, like, how would you go about designing even rubrics or, or like when you do design your activities, how, how do you leave them open enough so that kids have that space for different kinds of thinking and creativity? Yeah, so I think you want to try to create open-ended problems or look for open-ended problems, even ones that maybe the, the solution is crystal clear, but you know that there's many avenues to reach it, and then each of those avenues is equally valid, because um, that sometimes creates space to, for students to show their, how they approach a particular problem differently. Uh, I think you also, within that, want to provide different ways for them to demonstrate their solution, whether it's, you know, some students think really well, paper and pencil, without, you know, very, systematically writing things out, linear thinking, uh, but that's just m might be how they, they approach something. Some other students just might really like to do it all in their head and just, talk, you know, will take the opportunity to think it through. Or for some students, the challenge is actually writing things out, even though they know it all. So, you know, the student who needs to take a lot of time to write it out actually possesses 
a skill or an ability that the student who can only do it in their head because that's the only way they're comfortable doing it, even though, or it's painful for them to write it out, there's, there's a different line of thinking there. Um, I think with the, the rubric question, I found I've had great success when the first time you're giving a type of project or problem, giving the students the opportunity to come up with the criteria with which they want to be assessed um, can be an interesting exercise. So if everybody kind of owns, um, sorry, my. FaceTime just took over my computer here. I don't know what that is. <laughs> oh, here we go. Give me one second. So in the meantime, while we're pausing, I don't know if you can get in the video. Our, our tech academic director is here with us as well. He's going to poke his head in here from the side. Yeah. I don't know. Julia. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Okay, really some of technology. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I think we did. Come back. <laughs> I had more questions. Have you ever met Mr. Calkins? <laughs> 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 That's the best. <laughs> uh, but you can, can you take a few more minutes? Or yes, please. Yep, no problem. OK, great. Um, did, I, I've been asking all the questions. You guys want to throw anything in there? Or should well, I, I, I'm, I was a little late, so I'm sorry about that. But I was really wondering about collaboration in the future. Like, I'm, my kids love to collaborate while they're in the process of creating, um, especially the writing processes. So I was wondering what could possibly come in the future in regards to that. The only information I can disclose there is <laughs> in a few months, um, certain things that many people have asked for regarding being able to design things collaboratively in real time um, that we're, we're hopeful we'll be able to create an experience like that. That's all I can say right now about that. <laughs> Okay. Is there anything we can do to help out? Those yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I asked questions about just like platform usage. We use Google Classrooms, Google Sites, uh, sometimes Nearpod to you know create our activities. Do you have any suggestions just for you know posting platforms, getting kids to comment on each other's work, creating prototype loops? Um, what do you guys use? Um. Yeah, like, so actually, here's another thing that I can only share a little bit of information about. <laughs> but it's another, you know, a lot of the ways that people are creating and sharing content, it's, we've never made it something that we've, like, forced people to use a system that we've created uh, because people have Google Drive or Dropbox or just other ways of organizing content. That being said, people have asked, like, can we provide something to make it easier uh, to want not only create the video, but then instead of needing it to like render on your iPad, couldn't you just upload it somewhere quickly and then have it available? Um, but then also be able to, you know, make things private, viewable, um, and add comments up. So we're trying to make that possible. Uh, you know, people use Vimeo, people use YouTube unlisted videos, but sometimes school policy. Um, interferes with, with what you can do. Um, so that's another reason we're trying to come up with a solution so for people who YouTube, Vimeo, Dropbox and stuff doesn't work out, um, there's another option that's you know, pretty self-contained and hopefully useful. So you, you mean more of kind of like an edu-creations kind of platform where that people could share out their tutorials, I mean their screencast or...? Yeah, but we're trying to not necessarily make it like a knowledge base or just for passive viewing, so we're gonna we're gonna try to make it so that, um, in addition to being able to view things, it could also be a place where people can share projects and assets and things. So, um, almost like a, an exchange kind of thing. So uh, it's still in the the early phases of discussion. So that's all I'll say about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I I guess I, I, I want to kind of hear about your experiences with design thinking. I, I've been I, I read a bunch about what comes out of the D school and and, and follow a lot of that. I've been design thinking workshops and I, I feel like we have a good um, idea of incorporating a lot of the mindsets 
methods in, um, doing the whole cycle as a project-based learning cycle at elementary school has kind of its challenges. I think only a couple of times would I say we've actually kind of approached it whole cycle. I feel like what I'm more doing is kind of putting in bits and pieces, like getting kids to develop empathy for their studies and putting in prototype loops. How do you, uh, what are your experiences using sort of this kind of project model? Um, so it's, it's pretty new stuff even at the school where I work. Um, but this spring, actually, I'm going to be doing a, a senior elective course um, where I'm actually going to have four weeks of uninterrupted, you know, nine or nine to two time with the students um, as as a prototype, just to see like, well, how what, how does this work? And if you actually had that luxury of uninterrupted planned time, um, can you kind of see the whole process through? Um, so it's it in it of itself is a little bit of a prototype. Hmm. Um, so, you know, so uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess other more personal question. You studied at, at Columbia. Did you have much to do with the with the teacher trainer college? Like, especially we're we're a Lucy Calkins school, so um, you know our reading and writing is based on that. We're about three to four years in, um, especially with the tech integration pieces. Like, what's going on there with tech integration, or did you have any experiences with them while you were studying there? Um, no, I didn't. I you know I. The only teacher prep program that I had any connection with was like for the tech specialists, um, but not just general teacher ed program. So I didn't have much work with them. The only thing I will say about TC, it's very much a research university, even though there is a teacher prep program. Uh, so it's more ed research than it is uh, ed practice. But that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> well, that was um, and I guess going back to this kind of idea of process, because I guess my perspective of what we see coming out of TC is more of a focus on, I think, if I'm perceiving it right, is more of a focus on process than on final product. That mm -hmm. even in the writing, they kind of de-emphasize the kind of publishing element and that producing of the writing at the end, but it's much more about this process they're going through. I know. I think Carol Dweck is also at Columbia as well. The the mindset. She might be, yeah. Um, so I was wondering if that was just something kind of in the air at the school there, like the you know this kind of constant going back to process as opposed to product and learning, or is that just a coincidence of these three elements congregating in that place? Uh, I would say it's more coincidence than uh, just a sort of overarching you know umbrella or philosophy. Um, but I'm definitely seeing more of a progression towards that, uh, which to me is good. I mean, especially when you think about digital authoring platforms, it totally removes the need for something to be a final draft because you can quickly iterate, quickly update and edit. Um, so it changes that whole mentality of like the published uh, product, even though in academia it's still like, all right, you still have to publish. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Chris, I've got time for like one more question. I just got another text that apparently might now my daughter is very yeah, upset. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, does anyone else have anyone, anything they want to throw in there? I think I've covered most of the stuff I, I've thrown out there. Um, um, I, well, maybe time for just a short one. Sure. Uh, I'm just curious about like when you're introducing this to students, and you said that you had experience in the primary and the elementary. So when you're introducing this idea or this project or this problem and you offer up the app as a way for students to show their thinking and illustrate their process, like how do you introduce it? Do you just give them a quick run through of these are the features of the app, this is how it could work for you and let them go? Do you show them examples of videos that people have produced um, as a possible final product and then say, okay, try this and, and what's worked for you? Because we've tried some things but I still don't think that we've put our finger on really how to get a lot of creativity in the process and still get a good product that kids can be proud of at the end. Uh, I think there's two things that can be very successful. The first is build in just some time for them to goof around and like without any instruction just see like what they're able to figure out, discover, uh, and then give them the opportunity to share those discoveries because that's an interesting way because um, you get an idea of how they're approaching a new interface. Uh, but then after that, I think it's good if you have an idea of like what direction you're trying to go, providing some sort of sample, whether created by you or that you found, because then that can contextualize some of their initial discovery in play, uh, and then give them a little bit more time now to try to say, okay, I, just, I played around for a little bit, 
now I've got a little more context. Can I now make those things work together? And uh, I found that to be a successful approach um, rather than saying, oh, look at this tutorial, read this instruction manual, or anything like that. Great. Hey, well, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Sorry for it to cut out, but... Uh, no problem at all. Uh, that was great. Uh, we're we're going to actually publish this, if that's okay, uh, and I'll send you the final product as well. Super. Can't wait to see it. Okay. Thanks okay, a lot. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. Okay, so we're trying, we're evolving in our screencasting podcasting. So one thing we want to get into is, is leaving endorsements at the end. This can be related to our topic or sometimes they'll be unrelated to our topic. So we're going to start with uh, Diego, who's going to talk about this one here. So here goes the first one, and these are different options you can use for screencasting with the kids. Uh, if maybe you don't have access to a Mac or, uh, you know, the Apple stuff, then you can use these in any other desktop, running Windows or whatever. This is called Microsoft Expression Encoder. Really easy to install. You can download it from the, uh, their website. Really intuitive, and the, the kids learn to use it in like 10 minutes. They just figure out how to set up their audio levels and their input and microphone, and then they're ready to go. And once uh, they've recorded their video, they can just export it into any format. It will be easy to access on your computer. You can upload it to YouTube or share it via Google Drive or anything else you, you may want to use, but really intuitive and a really nice tool. I think we have, do you guys have other options for screencasting? Well, we're recording with um, Camtasia, um, but we've also noticed that on the U Yosemite update, um, the QuickTime player has a really quick and simple way to make screencast. There's no bells and whistles of highlighting or anything, but like you literally just open QuickTime open a new screencast and, and go. And so that would be another option for if you're using the screens. And um, I've seen tutorials but haven't actually worked it out yet of plugging in iOS devices and you can screencast straight from those as well. So that opens up tons more dynamics as far as what we can have our kids producing. Um, <clears throat> we don't have our Mac lab yet, but we, we do have a few teachers who have um, Airbook pilots in action. So that's something we're moving into um, in January is, is getting them into creating more screencasts there. Um, you mentioned what, what did they use in the drive example? What was it that this was my, Microsoft using yeah. okay. And of course, explain everything. Uh, I know that EduCreations also has a screencasting option, and they have a library of screencasts. So when we played around with that a couple of years ago before we moved into explain everything, but it is kind of cool because students can look at what other students are doing around the world as well. And, and I think I think also um, for speaking as someone who is not super comfortable with using a lot of technology in the classroom. Something like this that you said is easy to use, you, you really learn it in 10 minutes, that might make it more accessible for teachers who do feel a little uncomfortable using technology to try things like that. That's yeah. how I felt with Explain Everything. And I think yeah. what, you, know, you also have to keep that um, where is this going next in mind as well. It's one thing to have the kids create these cool screencasts but you definitely need the platform for collecting them. So we use Google Classroom for that. We mm -hmm. open an assignment and the kids just upload the screencast itself. They would export the camera roll and then uh, upload it as, you know, as a, an a, a assignment. What am I trying to say? As a, what is that little clip thing? As content from their computer, whatever. Um, and then I love what you guys have set up, a site for it to be posted and for display later. And then you know, that could continue a feedback loop there as well if you open the comment section, um, or maybe just serving as you know posted tutorials as well. There's also uh, we've got some Chromebooks now, and so with the Chromebooks you need a Chrome app, and there, I believe Screencast-O-Matic is a Chrome app that you can do screencasting right in Chrome as well. Yeah, you should be able to do that on, on the OSX as well. Um, I think with a little bit more, you have to download something, but, but I've done that before as well. So I know Tara before was, was using Screencast-O-Matic, and what's the other one, Jing, which is owned by the same... Yeah, uh, Jing is Camtasia, but the free, Jing is free, um, and so is Screencast-O-Matic. Cool, and so what, one of the things that got us thinking in these terms is um, some of the more professional screencasts already out there. I guess Khan Academy is the one who really opened up the possibilities for this, and I see they're flowering out into all kind of different formats as well. We used Smart History in the Ancient Egypt project most recently, and then this one we used when the kids created um, Fibonacci spirals 
the doodling and math has some pretty sophisticated presentation. They speed it up so it's stop frame. I'll just play a little piece of it. Say you're meeting in a math class and you're doodling flowery petal-y things. If you want something with lots of overlapping petals, you're probably following a new sort of rule that goes something like this. Add new petals where there's gaps between old petals. You can try doing this precisely. Start with some number of petals, say five. Then add another layer in between. But the next layer you have to add ten, and the next has twenty. The inconvenient part of this is that you have to finish a layer before everything is even. Ideally, you'd have a rule that just lets you add petals until you get bored. Now imagine you're a plant, and you want to grow in a way that spreads out your leaves to catch the most possible sunlight. Unfortunately, and I hope I'm not presuming too much in thinking that, as a plant, you're not very smart. You don't know how to add numbers to your decisions, you don't know geometry proportions, and you can't draw spirals or rectangles or slug cats. But maybe you should follow one simple rule. Botanists have noticed that plants seem to be fairly consistent when it comes to the angle between one leaf and the next. So let's see what you could do with that. So you grow your first leaf, and if you didn't change angle at all, then the next leaf you grow would be directly above it. So that's no good because it blocks all the light or something. You could go 180 degrees to have... So I was playing this for some fifth graders, and I was really playing it more as an experiment. Like, can they catch it? Like, it's moving so fast. The language is going so fast. But with all these visual representations in my informal assessments, just in discussions afterwards, they really got it. And then we gave a homework assignment to go back and rewatch it and actually take notes on it and present those. And so they got the whole concept. And then the next day we just started creating a spiral. So um, I think this format opens up you know, incredible possibilities at the teacher level and at the student level. But there's just you know, using the visuals and the speeded up audio didn't seem to bother them. The visuals are huge. I think, I mean, that's one of our big focuses in math is not only being able to use a traditional algorithm for addition, subtraction, multiplication, whatever, but what does it mean? What does it look like? And so visuals definitely make a difference. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you guys for coming in. It's 7 in the morning to record this. <laughs> um, I'm you know, amazed by what you guys were doing in math, and so I'm glad we got to kind of capture this discussion there. And we'll continue from there. Well, thanks for the opportunity to share. All right, everybody, this has been our second journey, and we hope that you stay tuned for our next one, which will be talking about Socratic circles. You can reach us at Twitter at Chris Davis CNG, also at LM Projects, and at MS Natileon, which is my own Twitter account. We expect to hear from you guys because we will be presenting in March in both uh, Sao Paulo and Curacao, and we expect to have a little bit of feedback before we go there and we get to know you guys. So stay tuned for our next podcast where we'll be talking about Socratic Circles. See you later. <laughs>